Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today we're taking some time before the start of the World Cup to catch up on some stuff we haven't yet discussed in detail, like the USMNT losing to Panama in the Gold Cup and their overall Gold Cup performance as a whole, like Americans on the move in the transfer window, a few that have moved and a few that might move, uh, like the USWNT's final preparations for the start of their World Cup campaign. Lots to get through, and to do so, I'm joined by my two pals, a man who is now demanding that every TSS introduction be like Messi's unveiling at Daft Punk Stadium. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, you can't hear or see it, but I'm setting off fireworks. David Beckham is excitedly waiting just off camera to give you a hug and then take a picture with you. He's clapping. Congratulations, Joe Lowry. You've made it. Yeah, I mean, so you're describing a normal Monday morning. That's my yes, Monday that routine. <laughs> David's just right in my closet all the time when he walks out and we do a little thing and then he goes back in and it's great. It usually works out really well. There's a lot of rain, which it's, yeah. is fine. In Arizona, we don't get a lot of rain outside of those very regularly scheduled Monday morning routines, but it works out well, Taylor. It does. Yeah, Joe, I do appreciate it's something that like you're really dedicated to the visual medium, even if we're in audio format. Joe does have giant curtains behind him that whenever we get ready to record, he goes and waits and then the curtains are pulled back. He's unveiled. He walks out. There is the rain effect, which, as you said, you're in the desert where there is no sand. Uh, There's also no water. I'm assuming there's like water restrictions, Joe. So it's really it shows that you spare no expense when it comes to introductions. Well, I like to think of the water coming down as like an asset for the greater Phoenix area, right? I mean, I don't know exactly how these things are connected, but I mean, everybody's going to get to enjoy some of this extra water. So I'm thinking of myself as a team player. I don't know if Messi thinks of himself that way. We'll talk more about Messi on uh, on the Patreon that we're doing later on today. But things are happening, man, in American soccer. We got the World Cup, had the end of the Gold Cup. Transfer action is flying left and right with rumors and reports and you mm-hmm. know, maybe something in between. There's a lot going on right now. That there is. And yet with all that going on, the most important thing I've taken away from this is that Joe Lowry's new, new nickname is an asset for the greater Phoenix area. I'm excited <laughs> to really uh, have that one spin out. Rounding out the crew is a man who won the World Cup, won the Euros twice, the Champions League twice, and La Liga <laughs> once. It's Graham Arbeloa Busquets Ruffin. Graham, on the promo art for this episode, which picture should I go with for you? Um, so people say I look like Graham Lasso a little bit, so you can maybe put a picture of Graham Lasso. He hasn't, he hasn't won a World Cup or a Euros, thankfully, as an, a former English international. But yeah, let's go with Graham Lasso. <laughs> let's explain this a little bit more for people who are not extremely online. Graham sent a message to the group yesterday of Alvaro Arbeloa being unveiled uh, by <laughs> Inter Miami, which I sort of assuming I was out of the loop, thought like, oh, it's another ex-Spain international who's chosen to play for Miami. Then you filled in the blanks and things got funnier. Yeah, so I don't think Alvaro Arbeloa plays anymore. I think he, is he, he might be a manager at this point. I'm right. not sure. <laughs> yeah, so MLS essentially used a picture of the wrong player to announce Sergio Busquets. I did enjoy, I watched the, the Messi unveiling this morning, um, which as Joe says there, we will be talking about more about that on on the TSS Plus Patreon bonus episode, but I did enjoy them kind of announcing Sergio Busquets. Essentially, they brought him out and they were like, "Oh, and this guy's here too." And then they had him at the back of the <laughs> the entourage, the crowd of people for the whole event, while everyone was there just to see Lionel Messi. 
That sounds about right for Sergio Busquets. And I'm assuming to round it up, there was one person, one journalist in the crowd just screaming how he was the most important part. And you don't know it, but he's the most yeah. important, important part of the unveiling, even if he doesn't get the hype. There was one fan just holding yes. up like heat maps <laughs> and graphs going, you don't understand who the real goat is. <laughs> he keeps the ball moving. He has people <laughs> skills. Uh, um, we are going to talk about the uh, the messy transfer. Now official, he, he plays for Miami. He shops at Publix, all Floridian things. We're going to talk good, about that good, on the Patreon. Good choice in supermarkets. Publix is, is very good. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Publix fan. Publix and Wegmans are, are, are my go-tos. Uh, and also, did Michigan. anyone see the, the cereal that he had in his, in his car? In his was it Lucky car? Charms? It looked like Lucky Charms. There was at least two very sugary boxes of cereal in there. So I approve very, very much. This is where we like cut in the messy MLS documentary to, to a year from now. And MLS has turned Lionel Messi obese. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if and when that happens, I'm guessing it will be a point of conversation. Before that happens, we should talk a little bit about the USMNT at the Gold Cup. We have not talked about them being eliminated uh, in penalties by Panama. Was it penalties? I can't even remember at this point, it was. Joe. It was. Uh, yes. There we go. It's always um, penalties. Whether you win or is. lose, it's penalties. It is. And Matt Turner could not save us, so that means he is no longer the greatest goalkeeper in the world. He is the standout performer <laughs> of this Gold Cup for me from a USMNT perspective. Wow, Graham, Drew's I'm actually crying. Those I'm, are real I'm, tears. I'm, I'm <laughs> devastated. I'm also just, when do we give our TSS nicknames? Like, when does the preview start? I'm in, like, a really <laughs> weird space on today's show. It feels so weird and so wrong. And the fact that Matt Turner didn't get the U.S. through, despite a pretty good showing in the shootout, to be honest, it's also feeling very weird and wrong. I don't know what to do with myself. Joe, we're just ignoring his goalkeeper for, goalkeeping for the Panama Goal that yeah, actually happened totally forgot match. about Just, that. Never right, mind. Sure. Neutral at best game from Matt Turner. Although, again, <laughs> came up fairly big in the penalty kick shootout. Mm-hmm. But that that moment was a moment in a series of moments that were all very bad moments for the U.S. men's national team. Yes. And this is another example from this Gold Cup of things just being weird, that normally if you had the United States being eliminated in the semifinal by Panama the way they did, looking as... I don't know, listless at times, as this U.S. team did in the knockouts, it would be the cause of much consternation. There would have been an emergency podcast and then a follow-up full review podcast. And then maybe, yeah, yeah, and then a couple more on top of that. In this case, because it is this sort of C-plus team, C-team, some speculation online as to what letter grade this team deserves. USMNT adjacent, I think is what this team was. USMNT adjacent, there we go. Uh, It it has not felt like nearly as much of a pressing concern. Uh, BJ Callahan, Patches O'Houlihan, still in charge for his final (laughs) game, no longer in charge. So it's, it's tough to take away any sort of permanent feelings from this. But with that said, Graham, we haven't gotten your thoughts on the U.S. through the Gold Cup. I'm excited for you to run us through what you were feeling watching them lose to Panama. Yeah, so I have a lot of conflicting thoughts on this Gold Cup campaign now that it's it's over. Um, from a U.S. perspective, of, of course, those thoughts are. I, I think if you don't take it too seriously, it was quite fun to see players in a situation they otherwise might not have been. And it reminds me of from my perspective of being a Scotland fan, we used to have like B internationals 20 years ago. And I remember really enjoying those B internationals because it put players into the team that you wouldn't normally get a a chance to assess. Um, But if the purpose was to find players who could make the step up to the A squad from this tournament, I don't think it achieved much at all, to be honest. And then you have the, the very blunt question of... Was this Gold Cup a waste of time for the US? And my my blunt answer is probably yeah, 
it was a bit of a waste of time. And I don't think that is an issue in a normal cycle, but the US kind of need to take everything seriously in the run-up to 2026 because these opportunities are so scarce. We've talked about that before. So then I, then I come to the conclusion that at least more of the A-team should have been there, and you can extend that to Berhalter too, who wasn't there. But this is where I have conflicting thoughts. I accept that these players needed some time off. They'd played the yeah. Nations League. They'd played a long club season. So it was probably a bit of a waste of time. I don't think we've learned anything. But I don't really know how you achieve an outcome that is different to the one that we got, if that makes any yeah. sense. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that, Graham. I, I, the one thing that I, I definitely wouldn't wade into, and it feels like you're maybe a tiny bit more willing to wade into it than I am, is this idea that some of the bigger players should have been there. Like, I, I subscribe very firmly into the camp that says, let these players not only have a vacation, like you mentioned, Graham, but also, like, let them go sort out their club futures. Maybe this isn't a thing for every summer, but the amount of flux across Europe for some of these American players, Pulisic, McKenney, Dest, Jedi Robinson just signed a new contract. You've got Tim Weah, you have Yunus Musa, you have Tyler At like Aronson, the list just goes on and on and on of all of these players, some of whom we'll talk about later on in this episode. I would much rather Christian Pulisic go and sort out a deal with Milan, which I'm stoked about, by the way. I'd rather him go and, and do that than come into the Gold Cup in, in the U.S. Like, I, I don't know. I, I guess I just yeah. struggled to find much juice for the Gold Cup in general right now. And so I'm not like trying to cast blame on any one part of the system for it not working out when realistically there's a lot of mostly fine reasons as to why things went how they did. So, Joe, I'm interested in that comment there that you, you didn't have much juice for the Gold Cup. I, I wonder if that is something that is temporary and as as uh, an outcome of this year's schedule where you have the Nations League final and then the the Gold Cup back-to-back. Um, because in 2025, correct me if I'm wrong, that's not going to be the case in 2025. The next time this comes around, I think the the finals of the Gold Cup, or the Nations League, excuse me, are in March and then you have the Gold Cup in the summer. Um, so do you envisage you feeling the same way in 2025 when this cycle comes back around again? Do you think this is a fundamental shift in the way that CONCACAF and the US sees CONCACAF in the Gold Cup? Any any time where there is the choice between playing in the Nations League in the summer and the Gold Cup in the summer, I think US soccer will choose to value the Nations League. It's shorter. It's sleeker. It is earlier in the summer, and maybe that's the most important part, the fact that it can be over before a lot of these club preseasons are starting up and training camps are starting up. I think that's a huge asset for this U.S. team and for the USMNT in particular. So anytime when there's double, well, anytime when we're doubling up in the summer, I think the shorter, earlier competition is probably going to get priority, and I think that's how it should be. Anytime where it is the only competition in the summer, that's a different story, right? It always does cause problems with European preseason, or at least it can, right? It can cause problems with the scheduling. But, like, I don't know. That's that's how this works for all these competitions, right? The Copa America, the Euros. You should go and, and value a summer competition. Mm -hmm. The challenge for me just runs in when there's two of them. And I think it does make sense to try and use your resources. And uh, one other thing, on the surface... I think the idea of trying to identify players that can help the full-choice squad was a, a fair concept. Like, you can gripe with the roster. I do have some gripes with the roster, but I don't think they had a ton of great options after the first-choice group and then all the injuries. But, like, it's a good concept to go out and try to identify these players. It's not U.S. soccer's fault that nobody really came in and said, this is my job. Like, this is my role in this team. I think that's kind of where most of us are, at least on player performances, is it's hard to identify a ton of players that made us think, oh, wow, like this guy has it and he's ready to impact the big group. 
But is that not an outcome of the circumstances, though? Because none these players aren't bad players because they failed to produce in a, in, in a Gold Cup, right? So uh, Alejandro Zendayas is, is, is a player who sure. I think most would agree didn't take the opportunity that was presented to him. There was excitement about him seeing how he could, at least in the attacking um, third of the pitch, kind of dominate things and make things happen for the US. And he, and he didn't do that at all. We're not right. just talking about one match either. We're talking about every match that he played to the point that Callahan in the semi-final drops him for Ferreira on the right wing. I think there was um, a little bit of really... a knock as well, according to right, reports, okay. but yeah, yeah. Okay, I wasn't aware of that. Anyway, he doesn't sure. start the semi-final. Sure there was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was that a Gio Reyna at the World Cup knock sort of thing <laughs> right. going on there? But basically the... the... Call- Callahan like, hit him with a two-by-four on his way out of the locker room and then was like, oh, he's got a bit of a knock. He picked it up mysteriously somehow out of nowhere. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a back injury, right? That's what footballers, anytime it's an ambiguous yep. kind of yes, exactly. yep, a back injury. Anyway, I hadn't heard that. But nonetheless, he, he didn't take the opportunity to, to prove himself. But I kind of cut him some leeway because that team, the framework's not there for him to show what he can do in the A-team because the A-team's just not there at all. So yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're, was there anyone ever likely to thrive in this situation is basically my question. I, th- I don't think it was going to be easy, but I also don't think it's impossible. So what I wrote about Zendayas in particular, and I think both him and George Mihaljevic are good case studies here, and Taylor, we talked about this a little bit, is this idea that maybe these players aren't, to your point, Graham, well-suited to be the dominant attackers, right? Georgie with Montreal and now over the Netherlands where he didn't really play, and Zendayas with Club America, they're not the best players on their team. They're not the go-to attackers. They're like accent players. They're the, they're the cherry on top of the Sunday, and it works well. Zendayas can chip in seven, eight goals in a season, and, and Georgie can grab a few goals and assists and progress play really well, and they're going to look fairly good, although that's still not really happened for Georgie in Europe at this point. But you get the idea. The concern with the national team is when they're around a big group of players, they're not quite good enough or their skill sets aren't suited to being the go-to guy. They're not suited to be the ice cream on the Sunday. They're suited to be the, the, the cherry or the sprinkles. The challenge, though, I, even if that's true, and that is my theory from watching these players and from analyzing their skill sets, but the challenge is I think the U.S. needs more game changers. Like I, I'm not totally sure that they need more complementary mm-hmm. players. Those guys are a dime a dozen, realistically. Like You can get Jordan Morris or Paul Areola to come in and be a complementary accent runner in the final third, and Zendayas brings something different, to be clear. And I would still prefer Alejandro Zendayas probably to both of those players. He brings something different, brings more skill on the ball. But realistically, the U.S. isn't really looking for more of those kinds of players. They have ball progressors. They have players that can move the ball up the field, at least at a competent level. What they need is more game changers who can come in and really give themselves a little bit of a boost in the attack, along with, you know, need more center back depth and left back depth and all that stuff. But like... I don't know. I kind of feel like this was a useful experiment for those guys, if only to see that they probably aren't really difference makers when it comes to the full national team. One follow up there, Joe. Who are the players that can, on their own, either raise the team's performance or have their performance be unaffected by the lower level around them? Not just in this Gold Cup team, but like from the senior team as well. How many difference makers do you think there actually are that could come in and, and have an immediate impact for this Gold Cup team, for example? Not as many as I, I would like there to be, certainly. But I, I think a number of the different first-choice guys we would see an immediate boost. So I think about Chris Richards in the middle of the back line. The quality that he has and the ability to organize and the ability to play out from the back. We saw several different issues it's, with this ragtag line. 
so on brand for Joe Lowry to lead this with not Musa, not Adams. I'm working back to front, Pulisic, baby. I'm working back Chris to front. Come on now. Richards. <laughs> I mean, it is. I think Richards is is going to solidify himself as a star in this cycle. Mm-hmm. We saw that starting in the Nations League. So I would say Richards certainly. You would notice an immediate impact. I think at both fullback spots, but especially Serginho Dest on that right side. I think you would notice an obvious change with any of the first three midfielders. You can toss in four if you want to add Gio Reyna. Like, I, I'm kind of just running through the starting 11, right? Polisic, I think, would take over a game. And at times, that can be detrimental because he takes too many touches. But we would notice a difference, a, a real positive one with Polisic on the left wing, knifing through opposing defenses at a gold cup than if it's Cade Cowell or Christian Roldan or George Mahalovic. That's a big gap. And then Balogun would be the other one that I would say, along with Weah in that front line. I think you put Balogun into this front line and, and his ability to slip in behind the timing of his movement. If there's anybody that's feeling up to finding him on some of those runs, we would notice him along with his his will, ability in the press and his a little bit of his ability to link play. So who are the players out of this Gold Cup roster that before the start of the tournament we thought could have been game changers and elevate themselves to that level? I, I'm thinking, well, Zendayas was maybe, yep. maybe one of them. Yep. Cade Kyle coming off the back of the U20 World Cup, potentially. And I know he's still raw, and even if he has a great tournament, we're still saying that he's raw and he needs to refine his game. But nonetheless, that the the, the opportunity was there for him. Mihalovic, another one, um, who could have pushed himself so. up. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anyone else I'm missing? Uh, I, I, for me, it was Zendayas and, and Mihalovic as the two primary options. And then always trying to get more info on the fullbacks, right? I think Dewan Jones and John Tolkien were both players that I was curious to see. And then Brian Reynolds as well, who I think has all the talent in the world. But even after this competition, we still haven't seen him put it together. And I think he's 22 at this point. I'm not particularly optimistic that that's going to happen anytime soon. I think those are most of the guys. Maybe if you want to toss the number nines in as well, but I could kind of go either way. All right, let's take a quick break. Then we'll come back to talk a little more about the US MNT and the Gold Cup and what comes next. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. 
So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We are continuing to talk about the U.S. men's performance at the Gold Cup. Heading into break, Joe listed a few of the players that he felt like had the most potential to have an impact, to kind of raise their estimations a little bit. Zendejas, Mihailovic, Tolkien, Jones, Reynolds, uh, to name a few. Uh, For both of you, how many players from this Gold Cup team would you be comfortable seeing in the starting 11 for the United States after the tournament? And is the answer just Matt Turner? Yes, (laughs) I think it is. I thought you were going to ask the squads, and Uh my answer there might have been like two from this Gold Cup, who I think are now in a better position all right. At this point, than they were previously. So and no one has two- played them. No one has played their way into like if if we had one of these guys starting. If John Tolkien is starting at left back, you're not like, yep, I'm fine with that. You're sort of like, no. oh, we'll see how that goes. I'm not. I'm certainly not thrilled about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Um, I love the mullet, but you know, from a footballing <laughs> point of yeah. view, maybe not. All right. So if no one has moved their way into the starting eleven, which I would fully agree with, who are the players, Graham, that you feel like have maybe moved into the conversation of being in the squad? If we're calling in twenty six players or thirty players, like around that sort of yep. borderline, what would you go with? So I think uh, Dejuan Jones had a, a good tournament and has probably moved up the depth chart one or two places. Although, having said that, the depth chart behind Jedi Robinson just squiggly and like lines is, is just, just yeah, like a question mark. Like that and, could yeah. exactly that could change very backs, quickly. I think, <laughs> but I think he's maybe now like what third or fourth in that chart. Whereas I think he probably would have been a little bit lower before this before this tournament. Certainly, wait, in my wait. mind. Let's st- let's let's I want to stick with that for a second instead of the swiggly line. So in my <laughs> mind, it's <laughs> been it's been Jedi Robinson. And then it's basically been if Jedi can't go, we see if Serginio Dest can play yes. left back, depending on who's at right back. And maybe the same for Joe Scally. He's a bit more of a question mark. But I feel like that's sort of been the left back depth in my mind. Would that correspond with what you all have? Yeah, yeah. I think so. And I think I think Jones is now potentially above like. Sam Vines on the yeah, uh, in, I would in the say so. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So I think in terms of actual left backs and not right backs getting moved over to left back, he is probably the backup option now, unless I'm forgetting about anyone. Um, no, I, I th- Graham, I think you're right. Sorry to jump in quickly. I think it's Jedi Robinson, then it's Sergio Dest, then it, it might be Joe Scally or it might not. I don't think Scally has ever looked especially good at left back for the U.S., but he's he's done that job at a high level. And then maybe it is someone like Dewan Jones, either above or below Scally. And and you're right, Graham. That maybe is a tiny bit above where he was before, just kind of in that pack. And maybe by winning that job over John Tolkien in the Gold Cup, even if I don't think the performances themselves were particularly special from Dewan Jones, the fact that he got minutes and didn't look out of place, at least at this level, admittedly a low level, is is a about as positive of a sign as that came out of this Gold Cup that we can hope for. The other yeah. player that I thought was had a good tournament was James Sands. Um, Agreed. And, at the base of the midfield. I, I, like, I wouldn't say it was an outstanding tournament. I do kind of wonder if that's just down to the sort of player that he is. And I, I do kind of question what James Sa- an outstanding tournament would look like for James Sands uh, just because of the role he plays, as I say. But yeah. he, he did things pretty well. And it is a position where the US needs a depth option at, at the six. And he probably is back to in the depth chart where he was a couple years ago before he, he moved to, to Rangers. I still think he could, he could polish up on his output 
on the ball. And Taylor, we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. There are still plenty of times when I watch him and I think he could do more in terms mm. of taking a risk with a line-breaking ball because he is capable of it. That's the frustrating thing with Jim Sands. When he does it, he tends to do it relatively well and he needs to push himself. He needs to push himself as well to make quicker decisions on the ball. But I do think of him now in a much more positive light than I did before the tournament. And those are the only two players I think of that in, in that way, I think. Joe, um, do you feel like that's a thing, a skill set that he can acquire playing for NYCFC? Do you feel like they do enough of that that he can sort of polish his his progressive passing, his passing vision, uh, that sort of rough thing when it comes to his game? Or do you feel like he's going to kind of more so perfect what he is already quite good at? So with NYCFC, they're a great spot for a young midfielder looking to develop their passing game. I think we saw James Sands do a bit of that in the past. The problem is, I don't think James Sands qualifies as a young midfielder at this point in his life. He's 23 years old, which is still generally a young age for a living person. But for a soccer player (laughs) heading into their prime, like James Sands is kind of already in that range. I am not optimistic that his game is going to really change all that much between now and and the end of his career, at least between now and his peak. So for me, Sands kind of is what he is at this point. And I would love to be wrong about that, by the way. Sands has improved, like I just mentioned, but I'm not not really optimistic about that happening. What I will say for Sands, I think he did have a generally positive tournament, mixed on the ball, which is what we expect, but, but pretty sharp defensively covering passing angles, really clear in how he moves and how he covers ground. He does a lot of good stuff, and I think he did sort of pop back up on the number six depth chart. The challenge for Sands is that maybe the worst possible thing happened for him with the U.S. right before he came into camp, which is that Yunus Musa started as the number six and looked half decent, maybe better than half decent. He looked like a player that if Tyler Adams isn't around, could could have a real future at that number six spot, allowing a Gio Reyna to pop into midfield as a number eight. So the challenge with Sands is the same summer that he came and sort of reestablished himself as maybe the, the next pure number six after Tyler Adams, the U.S. might have stumbled in, thanks to a Tyler Adams leg injury, might have stumbled into another option that's going to supersede him on that six-step yeah. chart. We'll see what that looks like going forward, but I, I don't, I'm, I'm not actually sure if Sands really moved up this summer just because of Eunice Smith. I, I, I think he did move up, and the way I would word it is, I think Sands is still very much, uh, He's in play for being the last man on a roster, right? He's in play for being the 23rd player or whatever. If if you had named him as the last man on a roster before this tournament, I think Twitter goes nuts. And I'm not saying that Twitter is the gauge of everything. We all know that, sure. that we a lot of the time Twitter it's best to ignore Twitter. But I think now, after this tournament, there probably isn't much of a backlash if James Sands is the last man on a mm-hmm. roster. I, I agree with all of that. The only thing I would add, Joe, I hear you about him being 23. I think there's always the mental component and who the player is mentally or who they have been mentally. Uh, speaking from my experience, Joe, you, you're younger, but you have always been a sage old head. Uh, I was real dumb in my early 20s and not particularly smart and definitely not inquisitive enough. And I think that there are certain players who can add that aspect of their game of like, I feel like the more you're asking why of a situation, the smarter you're going to be. And if James Sands is a player that maybe hasn't always 
study the game. I'm not saying he is, but this would be where I do think you can still have that massive development at 23, 25, even 30, is if you start to become more a student of the game, if you get under the right tutelage and you are able to process things that you weren't able to process before, if you're able to learn how to do things in a way that you couldn't before. Uh, for example, it turns out that like, you know, not throwing your towel on the floor is a good idea. I learned that when I was like 25. Uh, so I think James Sands, I think there is a reality in which he he can learn more by observing through instruction and by then sort of backing himself to make those things happen in training and then in games. But there are also plenty of examples of a player who sort of reaches their level, is comfortable at that level, makes the money they're making, and, and that's the way it kind of shapes out. And I think James Sims could be either one of those players at this point. But I share your concern, trepidation, lack of optimism that at 23, it's unlikely that he is going to develop into a like fulcrum passing machine. Right. Yeah. Uh, so maybe that's not something I should be expecting of him. But it is something that I hope we see more of uh, throughout this MLS season. The, the Rangers move was a real misstep. He he missed out mm -hmm. on the opportunity to go somewhere in Europe and learn those things and add those things to his game. Um, but I, I think I, I take your point as well, Taylor. There are players who develop late. I mean. Xavi Hernandez wasn't a first-team Barcelona player until yep. he was like, what, 25? So there we go. James Sands is going to be the US MT's uh, Xavi Hernandez. You heard it here first from Graham Ruthven. Not at all controversial. Uh, I, <laughs> what, what, where are you all on Miles Robinson? Because I think he is, he is another one who I was sort of like, yeah, if he's healthy, he's in the starting 11, or at the very least, he's in the squad. I think I still feel that way, but the penalty that wasn't given but would have if there weren't another foul that happened, and then the actual penalty given harsh because I think with both of those it's sort of an elbow it's a hand that he definitely did not intend and I and I have a hard time judging him but at the same time I have a hard time getting it out of my head that he basically conceded two penalties and looked a little bit reckless I think I then add the caveat that you all have already talked about of if you have the more senior team around him does he have to gamble as much if he's not looking out for Jalen Neal is he able to play more of his game and I think he is uh, so I more or less am in the same position I was with Miles Robinson of when that senior team is together I want him included and then I want to see how he does but I do think he had some moments that made me remember that he is not yet the finished full product yet yeah including for the Panama goal in the semi-final which isn't purely on him it's a collective failing but you have a real uh, disjointed backline for that goal where the ball goes back to I can't remember which Panamanian player actually plays the, the, the pass over um, but first first of all there we go first of all the, <laughs> um, the there's no pressure on the ball so the, I, this it's not fully on Miles Robinson but then the ball's played over the top you have I can't remember is it Miazga that steps up Robinson steps back with Yedlin there's no coherence there there's no communication and in that moment if I'm isolating Miles Robinson I go Walker Zimmerman's looking quite good in this moment where if Zimmerman is the one alongside Robinson, we had that partnership, then it's quite clear that Zimmerman is the one who's holding that line, who's the organiser, and Robinson maybe isn't quite mature enough to take on that role yet, I think, was, was my reading of that situation. Yeah, I, I think I disagree with pretty much everything on Miles Robinson okay. that, that you guys that you guys have said so far. I, I nothing has changed. I love it when Joe does that. So, I, I don't know. It's so like passive aggressive. It, it was it was sorry, it's not supposed to be. Um like that goal was a calamity of errors from the US, certainly. And, and maybe Robinson is a little bit late to step. 
it's not Miles Robinson that keeps him on side, though. It's it's DeAndre Yedlin. Like, Robinson does the job, ultimately, that he needs to do to preserve the crookedest of crooked offside lines, at the very least. Yedlin is the one, like, picking daisies on the right side of the field. He's not ready at all for what's happening. And then it is Turner who comes out uh, either too aggressively or, you know, doesn't come out aggressively enough to actually win the ball. So Turner gets caught in no man's land. He's certainly not above blame. And Graham, you were right to point that out earlier. And Yedlin really makes a, a whole mess of that entire play. But, I mean, center backs are, aren't, aren't even perfect, right? So if, if we do want to put some blame back on Miles Robinson, and there were moments of this tournament to put blame on him. He did not have his best tournament. We've just seen so many good things from Robinson over the years. Thinking about the last Gold Cup yeah. where he was extremely influential. Thinking about other moments. Like, I mean, nothing that happened at this Gold Cup with how, I guess, almost meaningless it, it ended up being should, in my view, come close to really changing anything about Robinson's future or his current role with the national team, which is probably as a starting center back next to Chris Richards or as the third player in that depth chart after Tim Riemann Richards. Yeah, I, I agree with everything there. And and this is the, the 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 discussion that we've struggled with throughout this Gold Cup as we're talking about players' performances and how they did and stock up and stock down. And then we keep coming back to this point of nothing that really happened at this tournament is going to affect our opinion. So I agree with, uh, I agree with that and Miles Robinson. I guess the point I was making, which maybe I didn't articulate very well, was if you look at that back line, he's the guy who has potentially come out of the A-team, right? So you're maybe expecting a higher standard sure. from him sure. than the others. And I didn't see that higher standard throughout the Agreed. tournament. And even in that moment, which you're right, is not down to him. It's a collective failing. But you're maybe looking to him as the A-team figure in that yeah. moment to yeah. take the lead. And he didn't do that. Agreed. Within the context of the Gold Cup and this performance in general, I would totally agree with all of that, Graham. Um, it's just a matter of, like, like, I think we both agree on that it probably doesn't matter a ton going forward, unless this turns into a regular pattern, in which case it's a different discussion. But is he more overrated than Chris Richards, Joe? That's the question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think Chris Richards is underrated a bit right now, so I'll say <laughs> yes just as a virtue of that. Mostly just trying to make Joe's eye twitch with uh, with frustration. I do love whenever I say something Joe doesn't agree with, and he he does sort of like get very still and very quiet. It's a bit Cobra-like, and it's a bit off-putting. So, uh, <laughs> Joe, I'm sorry to have upset you uh, with my Miles Robinson criticism. Uh, are there any other players? Because I feel like we, we keep going back to, like, there's no one that has really raised their estimations such that we're like, yep, that guy. Is there anybody that has fully fallen out of your estimations? I think there are certain veterans, like DeAndre Yedlin we talked about, who maybe we'll continue to see him in January camps. But I think even looking at that left back for a moment, if it is Jedi Robinson, if it is Dewan Jones behind him, and then we're considering like the right side as providing depth options potentially. So it's like, let's say Dest and let's say Scally. If we're going to bring a third right back, I don't think it needs to be DeAndre Yedlin anymore. So he's, he is one. Christian Roldan is probably one of those. Jordan Morris is potentially one of those. Maybe that's a bit too harsh. But I, I think there's so many talented winger options that I would have loved to see somebody even just try more things on their own and have at least a few of those things come off. Zendayas tried plenty, but pulled off so few of them that it's hard to really look at at much that he did as being particularly positive. So I think the attacking positions, the winger spots especially, were, were ones that I felt somewhat let down by. Yeah, I mean, that was, I would apply that to a lot of the field, Taylor, certainly. I, I think, I think this was probably or at least has a very real chance to be the last time we see some of these different guys. And you mentioned a few of them there, Taylor. DeAndre Yedlin, I I think given that he was already on the the fringes of any squad with the amount of right backs that are out there playing at a higher level and and often playing better 
than DeAndre Edlin is. And then for him to come out and, and not play particularly well in the games mm-hmm. that he played in this competition, that doesn't speak well of his future with this program. I, I would be a little surprised and disappointed, frankly, if we see much more of DeAndre Edlin. Aaron Long is not somebody that I think we would have seen this summer if 14 different center backs weren't already injured. So I don't think we'll see much of Aaron Long going forward. And you can probably apply that same logic to someone like Roldan. I wouldn't go so far on Morris just yet. If Zendaya had shined, maybe it's a different discussion. But mm-hmm. I do think, given that there are fairly high-profile friendlies coming up in the fall, specifically that game against Germany, the rest are, are not quite as as exciting. But there are games that we will see a heavily European-based roster because those are most of the U.S.'s best players at this point. With those games coming up in the fall and then the Copa America next summer, and there'll be other friendlies and games in between that stuff. But... I think for the foreseeable future, it's going to be the A-team. You mentioned January camps, and maybe that is still an option for some of these players, but I don't expect when push comes to shove that we're going to see any of those names that I just mentioned, mm-hmm. or at the very least, not very many of them. Yeah, Aiden, Aiden Morris, uh, I know he only played one game, but it was a pretty bad game against Jamaica. Uh, he then leaves the camp for uh, personal reasons. Um, I, I personally don't know what's going on there. Yeah, I don't know if same. there's been any reporting. Um, so I hope all is okay with Aidan Morris. But in a footballing sense, I feel like the chat is probably going to be quelled a bit around him for a little while. Maybe he's involved in a January camp, but feels like we're not going to see him for a bit. Yeah, I think that's the case for a lot of the players in here. Cade Cowell, maybe one of those, unless he gets that move to Crystal Palace that we've all heard so much about. (laughs) Uh, Final questions for you all would be about Brandon Vasquez and Jesus Ferreira. Uh, Has the needle moved one way or the other on either of them? It feels like it's exactly where it was for me. Of like Brandon Vasquez, exciting. Let's see what what continues to happen and how he continues to to develop. Scored goals, but also missed chances, and so it was a somewhat uneven, if positive, performance. And then Jesus Ferreira scoring tons of goals, doing all the Jesus Ferreira things that he does when it comes to, I guess, Caribbean opposition. Uh, yeah. I love, I love somebody pointing out that uh, Panama does indeed touch the, the Caribbean, and then he uh, immediately scores after that point is made. <laughs> so we know he can do that. We know he can play. As the number nine in various ways, and then I guess as an attacking midfielder, but also as a right winger, he did a lot in this tournament. Jesus Ferreira, did we love what we saw? I I thought Jesus Ferreira had a good tournament. He's one of the players that I I, I was quite high on. Um, if, in terms of whether he moved the needle or not, that's that's a difficult discussion. Um, because he was already quite high on on the depth chart. The the imagery I would use is he blew up the balloon again, right? So the balloon had been full. It kind of deflated at the World Cup a little bit and he's blown it up a little bit more where we saw what he can do. Like we saw his Ferreira things in this tournament. I think also some of his finishes as well were pretty impressive. There was yeah. two or three really impressive clinical finishes from kind of low XG opportunities. And in the Panama game, I know there's some debate whether he kind of means to take some pace off the ball by kind of hitting it with the top of his foot and that makes it the, the flight more difficult for the goalkeeper to save, for Mascara to save. But nonetheless, that's an excellent finish. There was a couple earlier in the tournament as well. So Ferreira certainly didn't do himself any harm. Vasquez, I don't think he did himself any, any harm either. Um, he made the most of the minutes that he he had. Obviously, doesn't start every game. I do kind of wonder how much of the US's trouble in midfield against Panama was down to what was ahead of them in, in midfield and having Vasquez as the number nine rather than Jesus Ferreira and Ferreira being out on the right side and, and him being a little bit out of position. Um, so I don't know whether... I've come out of this tournament thinking Brandon Vasquez is a number nine that you can start at, at, at the beginning of games and you can build around and you can use him in possession. 
but we kind of knew that about Vasquez already. We knew we know what both these players are, and and we saw that at the tournament. Graham, you had a you I believe drafted Brandon Vasquez right in your USMT starting eleven. Oh, I can't remember. That I think, was a I, long had, time I, think ago. I had Pepe. We know who Joe went with. Uh, it, <laughs> it was Haji Wright, uh, and then Graham. With I think you went Vasquez. Uh, would yeah, you I go? So. Would you go Vasquez over Ferreira at this point still? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but that feels like I'm changing my opinion on a whim. Yeah, I don't know. I like. His, I, I think. I think. I, I like a lot of what Jesus Ferreira, Ferreira brings, and I think he is. I'd probably have Ferreira third on the um, on the depth chart just because he has a different option. I think I'm a little bit higher on him than others are. Yeah, I I think like we said with the left back, there's a lot of soup after Balogun and maybe Pepe. We'll see how that the move to PSV works out for Pepe. We're expecting that he's going to compete with Luke De Jong for minutes. And I heard that, that wrong, be... and I thought you were still talking about left backs, and I was very confused as to what like, Joe has restructured this program. It's the Jossie's have... artist move, Taylor, that we've all been waiting for with Ricardo Pepe. He's going to use that long frame to get up and down the left side. No, I mean, we'll, we'll see Make what happen. happens with Pepe at PSV. I am, I'm interested in seeing Josh Sargent in the fall, probably over Brandon Vasquez or Jesus Herrera. I'm not going to throw a fit regardless of what happens because I don't think there's that much separating these players, but... We've just seen these two guys. Let, maybe let's see Josh Argent. We didn't get to see him this summer because mm-hmm. of an injury. I would like to see Josh Argent in the in the fall. But what I will say is I'm kind of hoping, or at least I'm intrigued by the possibility of Brandon Vasquez and Jesus Ferreira both moving to Europe. Vasquez has mm-hmm. been involved in, in many more rumors and reports. There was concrete interest from Borussia Mönchengladbach. That move didn't end up working out, at least at this particular time, because FC Cincinnati, understandably, want to go win trophies. So we'll see what happens with Vasquez. But if he goes to a a high level in Europe and goes to play in the Bundesliga, and maybe Ferreira follows, I believe there have been Bundesliga reports surrounding him as well. That, I think, would be a fascinating kind of twist and turn in their careers to see if one of these guys can actually take their game to the next level. Because realistically, they both reached almost the top of Major League Soccer at this point. You know, they were both very good last season. Ferreira's been excellent this year again. Vasquez has been a little quieter, but maybe there's another leap in their games that we'll see if they go to Europe, or maybe one will separate himself from the other. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I want it to happen so that maybe we can get a little more clarity on what this depth chart should look like. Realistically, though, just Balogun should be healthy forever, and yeah. then it won't matter. And then just to apply some wider context, like, the the dynamic has shifted with Balogun coming into this program where it almost kind of doesn't matter. Like England, I'm, I'm over here in the UK, right? No one ever discusses who the depth option is behind Harry Kane. Whether they should or not is another matter, but like it's just Kane and then the rest. And I do wonder if, with Balogun coming into this program whether that's the way things are with this discussion where, yeah, it's good to have other options, but at the end of the day... Does it really matter if Balogun is fit and scoring goals? I, I don't know. I don't understand how we've never had to figure out what happens if Harry Kane can't play for England. I don't know how that hasn't been an issue, but it hasn't been an issue in the same way that every season preview for the last like eight years has been, what will happen for Spurs if Harry Kane can't yeah. play and score goals? And yet he still pretty pretty often finds a way to make that happen. Let's hope Balogun does as well. A Balogun that could be on the move. We're going to take one more break. We're going to come back and talk about some players on the move or potentially on the move back soon. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, 
it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willingly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Welcome back, gentlemen. Let's stop talking about sad things like the USMNT at the Gold Cup. Let's talk about happy things like Americans on the move. That never generates headlines. Let's start with Christian Pulisic, who is no longer playing for Chelsea. Hooray. He is and now his, playing. He's also no longer Christian Pulisic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, girl, he is now. Man, okay. Let me, let's pause there because I, I want to run through this really quickly because <laughs> I definitely got fooled by this one. So basically what he said was... The pronunciation, he was asked about the pronunciation of his name. He said it's the pronunciation he said before Pulisic. But then, I, I'm guessing jokingly said, but since we're so close to Croatia, you can go with Pulisic. Either one is fine. Basically saying, I don't really care. This is how it's said, but you can do it however you want. And then it seems like just that second part got clipped. And so suddenly we felt like we were living in a bizarro world where Christian Pulisic was the artist formerly known as. Is that a fair summary of things, or have I missed something else along the way? So I I didn't watch the full press conference because um, I don't. I it's don't, a full press conference. Didn't, didn't feel like yeah. that was the, <laughs> yep, the yep, move, yep. whatever day that was last week. <laughs> yep. But mm-hmm. um, Christian Pulisic certainly has over and over again, as recently as last year, said like it's it's Pulisic, and I think it was mm-hmm. tongue in cheek, and then. Uh, Felipe Cardenas kind of just tweeted it out with a little bit of a lack of context and people ran with it and there was a whole little internet debate and now we've moved past it and I'm thankful for that. So you're thankful for that, Joe. It sounds like you are also thankful that he has made this move official. Uh, You seem pretty optimistic about what uh, awaits him at Milan. 
I don't know if it's going to work out, right? Because anybody forecasting transfer so maybe success not, is never blowing smoke. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. We that. I just think that's the, I think anybody, anybody who like doesn't acknowledge that is like, they're just full of it, right? Because transfers, the odds of them succeeding are, are always lower than I think we think they are. But man, as far as this move goes, this is about as good of a choice for Pulisic as you could ever hope for, right? They've needed balance opposite of Rafael Leao for a while now. We saw that in the league. We saw that in the Champions League. They make a deep run in the Champions League, making it all the way to the semifinals. But over and over again, every time we watch them and every time we talk about Milan, it's that their left side is fantastic with Leao and Hernandez, and the right side is a black hole, right? They, they never had a player outside of Rafael Leao, who scored 16 goals, I believe, in all competitions last year. Nobody else scored more than seven. None of, none of the other attacking midfielders or wingers, I should say, scored more than seven goals, expecting that Pioli's either going to stick with the 4-2-3-1 or go into that 3-4-2-1 that we saw sometimes last year, or there's been reporting about him moving to a 4-3-3 this season. Regardless, there is a right wing, right half space spot waiting for Christian Pulisic on the opposite side of Rafael Leao, which is what they need. Like, they need quality. Straight up, Milan, they need quality to compete for another Serie A title. They, they win it two years ago. They come up well short last year. Their underlying numbers pale in comparison to Inter and to Napoli. Like, they need more quality. And what they've gone out and done this transfer window is go find it, right? Pulisic's not the only player. They brought in Ruben Loftus-Cheek. They signed, Graham, who's that midfielder from the Eredivisie? Have you seen that? That uh, Some of those moves that they've they've been reported? It's fine. Uh, they're, they're in, in talks for sure. another midfielder. Yunus Musa has been linked. Like Balogun has been linked. Musa, it feels like is actually happening. I'll be a little surprised if it doesn't at this point. Balogun is, is a totally different story, and we'll get on to him in a minute. But they're going after talent, which I love. And I think Pulisic fits in Pioli's pretty pragmatic kind of player-oriented style where they kind of run the show out on the field. They're not really going to dominate the ball. They're not always going to sit in a low block. Pulisic will have chances to attack in transition. He'll have yeah. chances in possession. He's a good fit for this team, and I really like the concept of him playing opposite of layout. Yeah, I, I broadly agree, Joe. Um, I think there are some questions, as there are with every transfer, but positionally, I'm not so hot at, on him on the right side as I think you are. I think that might just be down to the fact that I seem to like miss the games that he's played on the right wing and people tell me that he does well on the right wing I've just never seen it personally for Chelsea he always played on the left and the US games that I've watched it seemed he always seemed to play on the left the ones that I have I've watched so I am I am genuinely interested to see how he does on the right side I also think it's interesting the possibility he could play centrally he could play as the Brahim Diaz replacement now they they are very different players Brahim Diaz and and Christian Pulisic but in, in a positional sense the idea of Pulisic playing behind the central striker, whoever that is for Milan, which is, by the way, a, 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 an open question at this point, um, probably Olivier Giroud, but nonetheless, they're in the market for a striker. I want to see how he does in that role because there's there's interviews in the past where Pulisic has said that is actually the position he personally would want to play in. That's his, that's his favoured role. So maybe Milan, in discussions and, and those, those negotiations, have actually lured him with a promise of that role. I, I, I don't think it's completely guaranteed that he's going to start on the right wing because, as I say, yeah, Brian Diaz is gone and there's a, there's a vacant position in the number 10 as well. I think there's a real chance we see Pulisic play some minutes as a number 10. I just think he'll also play in other spots. Like, if, if Leao's getting rest, we could see Pulisic on the left. We could see him on the right side. We could see him centrally. There's all sorts of opportunities. What I just keep coming back to, and Graham, I think you'd agree with this, there's just a need for talent. Like, Milan just need quality. And, and there's minutes yeah. that are open and waiting for someone like Pulisic to come in and fill them in the attack somewhere. And Pulisic is clearly the player that they first identified to come out and do that job. And that, as someone who wants to see Christian Pulisic play and impact games and, and stay healthy, hopefully that last one happens, 
Like there will be opportunities for him to go and thrive in Milan. And if things work out and he takes those opportunities, I think this will be a very successful move. There's also a non-footballing aspect to like about this move. And that is that AC Milan are a big club, right? They're one of the biggest clubs in Italy. You're talking about Christian Pulisic, who was meant to be or is still the poster boy for a whole generation of US soccer. And he was being linked with, and look, I don't mean this in a disparaging or disrespectful way at all, but some of the Premier League clubs that he was being linked with were... You know, Fulham, who obviously have been good for a number of American players, or Crystal Palace, or or a number of kind of mid-table to bottom half of the table clubs. And instead, he's gone to one of the biggest clubs in Europe, a Champions League semi-finalist last year. So I, I like that aspect of it as well. Um, I like a few things here. I like uh, just that he's getting a new opportunity, number one, on a very basic level. But a point that I, I sort of forgot about is how much Milan need that talent until Joe started mentioning it. And then Graham mentioning, I totally forgot that Brahim Diaz was on loan. So he is no longer there. But when we saw them in the first Champions League, uh, first leg of the Champions League semifinal against Inter, when Benacer goes out early, Diaz has to slide over, and then I think it's Junior Macias who comes in, and there is a decided downturn in the quality in terms of the attacking uh, chances created. And so now you're losing, losing Brahim Diaz. You, you uh, I'm assuming Benacer will be back, but I think you lose one player, and suddenly the whole team struggles to attack. I think you bring in Pulisic, and, and I feel like he's going to get a ton of opportunity and a ton of minutes and can be a difference maker for them. So that one makes me really optimistic. Uh, Milan have also lost Sandro Tonali. They've brought in Ruben Loftus-Cheek as well as a few other players, but there is plenty of speculation that we'll see Yunus Musa end up at Milan. Would we like that move? Because at first it felt like another one where he could go to a place where there is some stability but also potential instability. There could be managerial change, and maybe it's more of the same from Valencia. And also maybe a lack of minutes, but the more I read about Milan, the more I feel like there's a chance that he is at the very least competing for a starting spot or, or getting minutes pretty quickly. So would we like if Yunus Musa went to Milan to uh, join Christian Pulisic? Yeah, I think it's a good fit. I, I, I think previously I said that I think this is a better fit for Musa than it is for Pulisic. And that's not to say that Pulisic won't be a success for Milan. There's lots to, of reason to think that this move works for him as well. But as a Sandro Tonali replacement, I think Yunus Musa works pretty well in that Milan system where there's sometimes a three, sometimes it's a double pivot with uh, Brahim Diaz last season further ahead. Maybe Ruben, Loft Ruben Loftus-Cheek is going to be pushed into a slightly more advanced position if Pulisic's on the right side, Loftus-Cheek and behind a central striker. That then opens up a space for Yunus Musa alongside Benacer. And I think his pitch coverage and ball-carrying ability is going to work well in that Milan midfield. The way that they play, they're pretty transition heavy. I think Serie A's in general is more transition orientated than people generally give it credit for. That was another reason I think this is a good fit for Pulisic. He, he played his best football in, in the Bundesliga, which is obviously very transition heavy. And then you look at Serie A and a team like Napoli and the way that they played last season, the success they enjoyed, there's a model there for Milan to follow. And both Pulisic and Musa, I think, adheres to that model. So, yeah, I think there's plenty to like about that move as well. I agree. I, I would like to see Musa go to Milan. I don't think... It is not a total guarantee that he just waltzes in right into that starting lineup. It does depend a bit on what shape Pioli opts for. If it's that 4-3-3 with a single pivot and two number eights, like folks have been reporting, then I do think he's the starter from the jump, probably opposite of Ruben Loftus-Cheek with Benacer behind them. But, I mean, either way, regardless of what the shape is, and we'll see different shapes throughout the season, I'm sure, from Pioli, they've got 
the league. They have cup competitions. They have the Champions League. There are lots of minutes to go around, and Milan are fairly light on bodies in that part of the field who can play the number eight maybe a few minutes at the six or can do both jobs in the double pivot. I think Musa would would be a good addition for them. Uh, Weston McKinney seems to be very much on the outs at Juve, will not be included in the preseason tour, doesn't seem to be in their plans. Should he also join AC Milan? Should we just yes. start adding Americans at Milan and see what happens? I have no idea what's happening with Wes McKinney, other than it seems like he's not wanted at Juventus. There doesn't seem to be, unless I'm missing chat that maybe Joe can fill us in on, but I haven't seen any solid links with other clubs. Um, so maybe this is one that develops a little bit later in the window, but right now it's a little bit difficult to speculate about Wes McKinney. All right, so we can't speculate on him, but we can talk about Tim Weah. I don't feel like we've spent much time on his move to Juve, a move that sort of like was quietly happening and then suddenly happened and was done and on we went. Uh, I, I am, I think of all the moves that could happen this summer, that's the one that has me most excited because I think he can play a number of different roles for them. The speculation is what, that he'll be sort of a quadrato, one quadrato replacement, which means he could play on the wing or as a wing back. And I really like that. I really like that because... I think he can do it well, but also from a U.S. perspective, it's a thing we saw him do very late in the Nations League to see out the game when the U.S. moves to a back five. And so giving him more comfort and familiarity with that position, but then still allowing him to get involved in the attack and do Tim Weah things. It ticks a lot of boxes for me. I'm pretty stoked about Tim Weah to Juve. Yeah, I like this one a lot. I think Weah fills a need for them. I do see him as a very direct Juan Cuadrado replacement, which I think will mean a lot of minutes at wingback, as long as Allegri is there. And Graham, this is something that you pointed out very wisely multiple times now. In some ways, Wea has tied himself to Allegri, because, or at, le- or at least had the hope that whoever replaces Allegri, if things go down, will also value a back three. Because I have a really hard time seeing Tim Wea impact games for Juventus at a high level as a winger. I- I- maybe he can do that job in Serie A against some teams, But I I don't think we have the evidence of Tim Weah being this super dynamic attacking force at club level. We've seen him do it with the national team, with the right players around him. But he's not, at the very least, like a a primary attacking option or even a top two or three attacking option on a team with as much talent as Juve. But for as long as Allegri's there, and that's a big asterisk, and as long as they're playing a back three, I think he's an ideal fit for that wing back role. He still is learning to do. I went back through after we talked about this most recently and, and all sort of realized we hadn't watched much tape of him at wingback or at fullback for Lille. I went back through and watched the tape. Way is very comfortable in that spot, certainly in the attack. He can stay wide. He can tuck inside into the half space like a winger would do. He can provide flexibility for whoever the attacker is playing one line higher up the field. One of Wea's best assets has always been his right foot and the service that he can provide from wide areas or from the end line. And he brings that certainly to the outside back position. He can combine a little bit. He has the speed and athleticism to help him get out of trouble and on both sides of the ball. And, and he can get into trouble defensively because he's still learning that role. He hasn't played a ton of minutes still as an outside back. But even in the moments where he makes some defensive mistakes in, in between the boxes, he's fast enough and aggressive enough to recover and, and smart enough as well to know where to go and and how to find his way back into plays. One area of potential weakness in his game that I'm hoping will be ironed out as time goes on is he's still not a great box defender. Like he's, he's not especially very good defending balls that come in over the top or defending balls that come in from wide areas as crosses into the box. He's not the tallest guy. Like whatever the height for Tim Weah is online, that's it's shorter than that. I'll tell you that firsthand. Like he's not a big guy. He's fairly small and has plenty of athleticism to get up, but you know the timing and the spatial awareness inside his own box isn't always there. 
So there will be growing pains, but I'm optimistic that Wei's skill set will work really well as that right wing back quadrato replacement. We'll just see sort of how stable Juve are, Juve yeah. are this year and, and maybe how Wei actually ends up impacting them. I'd be asking one of the individual coaches at UV to do some one-on-one training on becoming a fullback. Certainly. Because Certainly. that kind of feels... I just can't envisage a way where Max Allegri turns this, turns this around for UV. So whether it's now or next summer or whenever, Allegri will be gone at some point. And I think Weir has to have the foresight to think of his place at the club when that happens. And that could be as a fullback. So yeah, yeah, I think some time in the training pitch learning some things would would do him him good. So we are optimistic about things for Tim Weah. I am confused about things for Serginho Dest, who's been linked with a bunch of different clubs around Europe. It felt like the Union Berlin one was gaining steam and, and seemed possible. Now, at least according to recent reports, it's most likely he stays at Barcelona or at least stays there for preseason and we see how he fits in. Uh, Graham, a lot of this, I'm assuming, has to do with Barcelona's uh, how difficult it will be for them to sign players is the way I'll put that one. But uh, they had uh, Jules Koundé playing there last season at times. He is more of a center back, ideally, for them. Uh, But Mm -hmm. if you're not going to go out signing people, then it's basically Julian Araujo, uh, who maybe isn't quite ready for starting for Barcelona. Uh, And then Serginho Dest is one of those possibilities. So that's where it comes out that it seems like he's going to be given an opportunity in preseason uh, he wants that opportunity. He wants to be at Barcelona. How are we feeling about Sergio Dest, Graham? Uh, not great if he stays at Barcelona. So we've been very positive about all the, the transfers so far. Obviously, this isn't a transfer. This is a player potentially staying. But yeah, a little bit more negative than Sergio Dest's situation. He said on a in, in a press conference um, last week or over the weekend, can't quite remember when it was, but basically Barcelona are, are starting their pre-season programme, friendlies, and he said, um, quote, I see myself staying. Obviously, I have to prove myself during the preseason. I'm fully focused on myself at the moment, so it's up to me, and I feel like I, I can, and I will prove it. He also said that Xavi had given him his word that he will get a chance in preseason to prove himself. I think he probably will get minutes in preseason, the way that those, those games go. But the issue for Dest is that Jules Koundé, you're right, Taylor, Jules Koundé did play on the right side of the defence for Barcelona last season, but the reason he he was signed and the reason he's been favoured in that position is because Barcelona in possession will often go to a back three and Jules Koundé being a centre-back by trade is obviously comfortable in that role. I don't really see that as Sergino Dest's game. So he might be in that squad. He might be a depth option. Whether he's going to get much game time or not is another discussion entirely and I would predict he doesn't get much game time if he stays. So Graham, super optimistic about time at Barcelona for Dest. Joe, are you similarly inclined? Yeah, pretty much. It's It still feels yep. like not enough has changed for anybody to feel great about this move. Sergio Dest clearly has a tie to Barcelona that he, he wants to make this work. I am not super optimistic about it at this point, but lots can change between now and the start of the La Liga season, especially mm-hmm. for a club like Barcelona. So We'll sort of like tread water along with Sergio Dest and see if anything changes between now and then. 
so we are over an hour recording. We don't need to go too much longer, but this is the time when things get a little bit loose and, you know, fatigue can set in. So if I need to bring Joe Lowry back on board, I'm just going to say Balagun transfer and then let Joe talk because I feel like that's enough to wake you up. I, it is always enough to get me talking about Valor and Balogun. It, it seems like there have been reports recently that Inter Milan are interested in Balogun. He's been linked to a lot of places. So he's been linked certainly to AC Milan. Inter will be another one. Clubs from around Europe are interested in him. Right now, he's either in the U.S. or nearing a move to the U.S. to play against the MLS All-Star team, as everybody wants to do. So I'm sure that's going to be a, a major career highlight for Fuller and Balogun. But in terms of a transfer move... Wait, is he, is he going to be there? Is he going to be with the Arsenal squad? He's he is training? in the squad. All of those things right. are subject to change, and right. who knows what's going to happen. But, I mean, he, he does make sense to bring to the U.S., certainly. So we'll see if, if Balogun plays in that game and what that looks like. But in terms of a transfer move, I'm, I'm intrigued by the possibility of him going to Milan, uh, to Inter, excuse me. Now, they have signed Marcus Taram already in this window, so that is a forward that will fit right into the front two. So minutes aren't like, going to be abounding, but if he can carve out a spot, and that is a big if that does hold me back a little bit here, like, I like the idea of him playing for Inter. The way that they play under Inzaghi, like they keep the ball, they like to spread the field, they're dynamic in transition. They're just a, a darn good team. I think they were the best team in Serie A last year by a wide margin. Yeah, by the end of the season, I know Napoli started very, very well, but they make that run in the Champions League, and I think they were the best team by the end of the year. I like the idea of Balogun playing in that environment. What just frightens me, though, is is Taram and Martinez eating up all those minutes, yeah. and, and that that definitely is a little concerning here. That that's the thing that's holding me back is the system that Inzaghi uses with the front two, and and Balogun has played in a front two for for Reem, um on loan last season. But I think of his best position as being the centre forward in a four three three or a four two three one, and it's for that reason. I'm, I swear I'm not trying to send every American top level American player to Milan to AC Milan. But it's for that reason that if it's a choice between the two San Siro clubs, AC Milan is the one that I want Balogun at. That Him being part of a front three that includes Rafael Leao and Christian Pulisic feels very, very tantalising, very exciting. So if it's if it's a choice between the two, again, I don't know whether the, it, Milan are still in running for him. They certainly were a few weeks ago. But yeah, AC Milan, I think, is the safer bet. A lot, I think a lot of it also will be what happens with Lukaku. I'm guessing if Lukaku were to end up at Inter, then we don't have Balogun going there. <laughs> I feel like that's that's a fair way to put that one, because with Taram already there, you've got Lautaro. Uh, Ed Dzeko is gone on a free transfer to Fenerbahce, but I'm not sure how huge of an impact that will be. So I, I, I think a lot of it relates to other transfers that could happen. But either way, I'm excited for what happens with Balogun. Even if that means he's playing in the All-Star game, Joe, we'll be there. So that means we get to see him and we can ask him afterwards, why are you still here? And I'm sure he'll love that question. <laughs> I'm sure he will. He was asked after okay. the Nations League win whether he was going to be with Arsenal. And I think he said, like, nah, I'm, I'm going on loan. So I, honestly, I don't know what's going on with Balogun at this point. I'm not sure that he really knows either or that he ever knew. Um, but yes, we will ask him the hard-hitting questions in the hmm. um, in the in the hallways of Audi Field. And don't fan girl too much, Joe. No, I'll try. <laughs> like, I'll try not to. I kept What's my composure. Color? I kept my composure back in hat? June. Um, I did ask him to sign um, not just my hand but other body parts as well. Um, oh boy! And he reacted fairly well. So we'll see what happens. Joe, do you have Balogun's signature tattooed on you? Be honest. Pat, 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 
Pass. Pass. <laughs> Next question. Well played, sir. Uh, so we will we will maybe see him in action this week. We will definitely see the U.S. women's national team in action this week. Uh, we've got the World Women's World Cup kicking off. Uh, the U.S. playing, I believe, Friday or Thursday or Saturday. I'm not really sure when it comes <laughs> to Australia times. But either way, uh, they're going to be playing. We're going to be reviewing that game. We're going to be reviewing many, many games from the Women's World Cup. I'm excited uh, for that to kick off. Joe, before it does... Do you feel like giving us the starting 11 you would most like to see against Vietnam in the opener? Yeah, for the so US? I'll do I'll do my preferred lineup, recognizing that this won't line up with Vlatko in a couple of major spots. But I would mm-hmm. try to get most of who I think are the best players out on the field in this game, which is, I think, what Vlatko will do as well. Maybe you can make some early changes. Maybe you can't. It, it is hard to say. Vietnam will be extremely defensive. They're going to try to sit back and attack on the break. The U.S. will have to break that down. They should have the quality to do that. But setting all of that aside... I would go with Casey Murphy or Aubrey Kingsbury in goal, and we will see Alyssa Nair. So there's the, the start right from the jump. Uh, we'll see Nair, but I would go with one of the other two based on form at this point in the season. I would go with Naomi Gurma and Alana Cook at center back, which is exactly what Vlatko will do, at least if he plays that first choice group. I would go with Emily Fox on the right of the back line and Crystal Dunn on the left. I think that back four is locked in along with Nair in Vlatko's eyes. I would go with Juliet at the six for 45 minutes to try and see what she can bring. I'm a little concerned that we didn't see her back in the game against Wales last weekend, but it is what it is, and I think if she's ready to go, and I don't know why she wouldn't be after playing real games in the NWSL, she is very clearly the top option in that part of the field. I would go with Savannah DeMello and Rose Lavelle if they're both ready to go. Rose Lavelle also didn't play in that game against Wales, so we'll see what happens there. I would expect it will be Haran and either Lavelle if she's fit or Ashley Sanchez as that more attack-minded midfielder. Sanchez has, has been a little bit rough in recent games, and I, I'm not super high on her at this moment in time, but I, I think Vlako very much values her as the second player behind Rose Lavelle. And then in the front line, I think it's going to be Alex Morgan. I would go with Sophia Smith or Trinity Rodman as that number nine and then use the other one on the wings and probably Lynn Williams on the other wing as well. I think it'll be Morgan as the nine with Sophia Smith on one side. And I truly don't know who Vlatko will use on the other side. Um, But I would go for the more fluid, versatile, high-energy, up-tempo kind of attacking line. But again, I think Vlatko is going to go with Alex Morgan because in some ways it's really hard not to go with Alex Morgan. And it's also really hard when you've never tried it really anything else other than Ashley Hatch at that number nine spot. And then you don't bring Ashley Hatch to the World Cup. So I think we're going to see Alex Morgan start up top. Uh, Graham, any thoughts on that one? I'd like to see the front three of Williams, Smith, and Rodman. That was one of the takeaways from the um, the send-off game, the Wales game, was how exciting the potential was of that front three. And if you don't do it, I know it's the first game in the US want to put down a marker and everything, but if you don't do it against Vietnam in the group stage, then maybe you're not going to do it at all at the, at the tournament. So yeah, I, w- I would like to see that. All right, well, we will see what happens with the USWNT against Vietnam. We'll see what happens in the rest of the transfer window because there's plenty still to go. Uh, But gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about those and many other topics today. Joe Lowry, well done, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, right back at you, Taylor. And Graham Ruffin, well done, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Listeners, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again many more times this week.